listening to Conversations with Scholars. This section of the podcast is dedicated to the stories of marginalized bodies in academia. This is inspired by Black feminist sociologist Jacqueline Alexander and political activist Angela Davis. Davis notes the importance of how histories never unfold in isolation, and we cannot fully know our own histories without better knowing the stories of others. So let's learn each other's stories and follow a process of retelling, revising, reflecting, and relaunching. This discussion is with Dr. Bryce Henson, an assistant professor of media, culture, and identity in the Department of Communication and Journalism and a faculty associate in the Africana Studies program at Texas A&M University. He researches Black if media and popular culture in the Global South, with a particular focus on Brazil and Latin America. Dr. Hudson received his PhD in Communications and Media with distinction from the Institute of Communications Research with graduate certificates in both Latin American and Caribbean studies, as well as cultural studies and interpretive theory at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He is the co-editor of the book Spaces of New Colonialism, Reading Schools, Museums, and Cities in the Tumult of Globalization. His single-authored book, Emerging Quilombos, Black Life and Hip-Hop in Brazil, will be published this fall, fall of 2023, with the University of Texas Press. He also serves on the executive board for the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora. He is an avid fan of Esporte Club Bahia and the Brazilian Football League. So we're here today with Dr. Henson. Thank you so much for joining us um, from Texas A&M. We still love all the scholars from across the world. You know, no one's too far to reach. (laughs) Um, But if you could just start off by telling us where you're from, um, what your research is about, and how you got into graduate school and decided to stay in academia. Yeah. Um, Thank you for asking this question. I think they're really... um, informative for a lot of people who are in graduate school or who are thinking about it. Um, So I'm a Black diaspora cultural studies scholar uh, from the Northwest, from Washington State. Um, Grew up in Spokane and and Seattle. Um, You know, I I took an unconventional route to academia. Um, Actually, one I wish more people would do. Um, You know, I have hopes and dreams, particularly for my students. So I actually started off in accounting. That was my first um, major in undergrad. And, you know, for me, I come from a working class background, first gen. So, you know, it's like the dreams that we all want, social mobility, financial stability. I'm like, look, I don't want to worry about money. And so accounting felt like something very safe, very practical. I'm good with numbers. Um, But I also hated it. (laughs) It was soul sucking. Um, And I think for me, I was having this internal dialogue between um, what is nourishing my spirit in my day to day? And then also, you know, how do we earn an income? Right. Um, and so after my third year, I took a bunch of communication classes and, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. I, I saw some videos, some documentaries about Stuart Hall and like many of us, I got hooked. Um, uh, and really what it did was it 
really enabled me to release my inner nerd that I think a lot of us suppress, particularly like folks of color, particularly from black communities, right? Um, you know, we kind of suppress, like it's still there, but it really allowed mm-hmm. the inner nerd to really kind of flourish. And I really leaned into it. And the thing that I really enjoyed about it was uh, I felt validation to something I intrinsically knew. Was it like media and pop culture are really important sites uh, of struggle over meeting, but also power. So before my first senior year, uh, shout out to all the super seniors out there. Um, um, so before my first senior year, I added communication as a major, which meant I had to do a double degree. I didn't, I didn't drop accounting. So I was actually mm-hmm. going back and forth between I remember going from an international tax class. No, it was just tax class to gender, race, and media. And I have to carry the IRS tax code. And people are like, what are you doing? Like, where are you coming from? Um, but I felt, you know, the, the classes I was taking were much more aligned with my intellectual curiosity. And um, to the folks I was hanging out with. Mm. And it gave me an opportunity to study, you know, this, this, the relationship between the symbolic and the social around media, culture, uh, identity, racism, um, and also like the materiality of racism, right? Mm-hmm. Often we think it's just about prejudice. Um, it's like, no, it's very structural. Uh, so also that summer, I call it my summer of clarity. I decided that I want to do a PhD and in communications and be a professor who researched these things. Uh, originally, I want to focus on the United States. Um, and what I was interested in was issues around blackness and post-racial ideologies. Um, and for me, as personal, this happens a lot, right? Um, so I have a white mother and a black father. And, you know, not, I was never, like, confused about my identity. But I was like, where do mixed-race black people fit in? Because, you know, there's always, you're like, oh, well, look at you. You know, you're evidence of a post-racial society. I'm like, uh-uh. Evidence. Right. Like, evidence. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like, oh, you're one of the good ones. I'm like, that is a trash statement, right? Oh, no. Or even just the color of them, right? Like, oh, you know, you're cute because you're light-skinned. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this doesn't feel great either. This feels really objectifying and also mm-hmm. anti-black. And so I was thinking about these things in the U.S. context. And then kind of the question popped up, you know, how else is this playing out around the diaspora? And so I studied abroad in Brazil in 2008. Because, uh, you know, they have similar histories of colonialism, slavery, uh, Etc. Um, and also, you know, I, for the folks out there who don't know why Brazil is important, it received the most enslaved Africans in the in the Americas, and it has the second biggest uh, black population or African descendant population outside of Nigeria. So, I always got to put on for Brazil. Brazil is very important for studying black folks. Um, but when I got there, I kind of saw this also ironic um, uh, or this contrast between the praise of Afro-Brazilian culture and the denigration of black people. Uh, black people, black spaces, and black history. So I was really struck by this praise of black culture there, um, but how it was also stripped from its social, economic, political, and historical context. Uh, so this is my end of my fifth year, and so at that point I knew I was like, all right, I want to um, I want to look at the lived experience, cultural expressions, and political practices of the black um, underclass in Brazil. Um, so that's how I got into this. Um, and so then, you know, I actually kind of lucked into my program. Um, you know, I, I went I did my PhD at the Institute of Communications Research at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Um, I, w- 
<laughs> I was like, I'm going to these cornfields. Um, but no, it was a really great place to go. Uh, <laughs> and so I really had, uh, I was really able to do some interdisciplinary work um, that I probably not would have been able to do elsewhere. Um, and so my dissertation was actually much different than the book I just wrote. Um, but really, I wanted to look at hip hop artists uh, within a media studies framework as both audiences and producers who are engaged in a diasporic dialogue. Um, and so, you know, so often in media studies, we think of people as either producers or audiences. And so I really wanted to look at, you know, contextualize them in this uh, sense of you know, this diasporic call and response. What does it mean to think about them as audiences and producers? Um, so that's, you know, my, my academic journey up to grad school in a nutshell. Hmm, that's really interesting. And I also like how you say that um, <laughs> once that, I feel like we all have a nerd about something, right? You just have mm-hmm. to find where your location is. And I can only speak for ac- academia, but it's that moment where it's like your own unique book club, mm-hmm. you know, where everyone is actually going to do, well, you hope, but everyone is going to do the reading and you can have a discussion and then people bring in different thoughts. Um, and it's like, okay, yeah, this is, this is, this is why I like being here. And I'm curious to know, so you started off as an accountant. Mm-hmm. Now, did any of that like knowledge transform or seep into your dissertation work? I, I wonder, like, do, were, was it able to bring in a different perspective while you were doing your research or still are doing this research? Yeah, I think the one thing that really stands out the most to me is I think it actually really fortified a class consciousness for me. Uh, and, bec- and I say that because I was doing, I was working for KPMG, which is a big four accounting firm, not a radio station as my friends all thought it was. <laughs> they were so disappointed. They're like, oh, what station? I'm like, it's an accounting firm. They're like, that's cool, I guess. Um, but I'm doing uh, individual tax returns for um, executives at a large technology firm. Since we're, you know, since it's on wax, I can't say what the firm is. Uh, but these are people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars, who are expats in a different country, who are receiving bonuses to do this. And, you know, they, these are very well off folks. Right. Um, and as I'm doing their taxes and I'm going through the tax code, you know, I'm finding all the tax breaks for them and whatnot. I'm seeing like their effective tax rate end up being like in the high teens. And my mother works at a grocery store. She's 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 a throwback. I admire her. <laughs> She's been working at the same grocery store chain since 1977. Like Loyalty. <laughs> right. Um, bless her heart. I love her. Uh, but, you know, my mother, who, you know, it's a union job, you know, very, you know, working class type of job. Um, you know, knowing, you know, I know what she was making and she's paying, you know, like 13, 14%. And it was just infuriating, right? These people who are making considerably much more than what my mother is because of the various tax breaks for them uh, are paying, you know, a tax rate. It's only a few percentage points above my mother. Mm. And, you know, for me, I think that really gave me a structural analysis, right? Like these individuals are doing what they're supposed to do, right? They're like, oh, you got the tax break, you take advantage of it. Um, but But I saw how, you know, this, even just the tax system, was benefiting the rich and the more well off, while someone like my mother, um, you know, is really having to pay, you know, uh, uh, you know that, you know, thirteen, fourteen percent of thirty-two thousand is like very significant, mm-hmm. right? 
Mm-hmm. That matters a lot more than, you know, 17, 18% if you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that was really infuriating and actually one of the things that um, really was soul sucking. Uh, and so that kind of has always pers- carried over with me of just also um, carrying over a class consciousness of what are kind of the class divides within Black diasporic communities. Um, and also did the need to valorize um, the poor and working class with also out without asking them to also change who they are, right? So, so often for black communities, like, oh, if you want to be deemed valuable or desirable, or respectable, you have to change who you are. You have to have a different, you know, you have to perform, you know, respectability politics and all that. And so that really has always, um, that critique that I got from working at accounting firm has always carried over with me as far as, um, you know, who's worthy of research and how do we represent them? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we narrate their lives, particularly when people are trusting you? Because I'm an ethnographer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are telling me about their lives, their stories, their, you know, experiences. Um, you know, and so often people have analyzed them from, you know, a deficit or, no, you know, a notion of uh, of lack, right? And so my, my goal was and has been, you know, to to valorize who they are with, you know, and, and Connecting to a different set of relations without asking them have, without asking them to have to change their position or who they are. And that, like, I really like how you brought that point around to being a black scholar in academia, right? It's like you enter and this common thing of like, okay, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel this need to change who you are, and then combine so many different knowledges. How did you maintain? Um, you know, what you came here to do and how did you make sure that, okay, this is who I am and this need to not change who you are? Because it's something that I don't think people understand a little bit until they get into it. And then when you get into it, you're like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) Um, It's just like, it's just coming at you in different directions. And, you know, it's either you hear stories of people end up writing a dissertation they hate, mm-hmm. um, even though I was told all dissertations are what you know and ever wants to read those things. It's just for your committee members. <laughs> um, but they realize that what they came here for shifted somewhere in between. And then you hear the other stories where they were like, I had to do everything to maintain, <laughs> to remember why I was here in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So there's... And what you're talking about is very common, and mm. there's a lot that's kind of surrounding that. So I'm, you know, pick on a few threads that are connected to that. With for me, um, I think for me, because and I worked briefly as an accountant after uh, undergrad. Uh, you know, for me, I said if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to do a PhD, I want to do what I want to do, and kind of do it on my own terms. You know, so my PhD is in communications and media. So I, I knew that I still had to, you know, show that I'm a communication scholar. I understand the discipline. Um, but I wanted to do something that felt politically important. And, you know, the, you know, the question I always ask myself, which is a question I always ask my students, is like, what are the stakes of doing research? Or, you know, what are the stakes mm. of the questions we ask? Um and so when I got to grad school, um, you know, the way I grounded myself was really finding community, a fellow grad student um, who 
you know, so me and my homies, we always got together on Thursday nights and, you know, because we're broke grad students. We just found some cheap <laughs> beers and like, you know, some bar food. But really the important thing of what we were doing on those Thursday nights were really just reminding ourselves that, you know, we are still full human beings. And what mm-hmm. we saw a lot of people do was their only identity was being an academic or being a, a, a intellectual. And they couldn't think outside of that. And for mm-hmm. us... When we meet up, um, it was to be a reprieve from that, to kind of remind us our, of our whole humanity. And, you know, I think I speak for the the group when I felt like I think we all found each other. So we came from different places like Detroit, L.A., Chicago. That we all kind of reminded each other of home in a different way. Right. Like the people we kicked it with. And so for me, I think also there's this element of. You know, even if we weren't in academia, these are the people I'd still want to kick it with and I'd want to be around. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also good to have folks who aren't in your department for the simple fact that if you are like, man, I can't stand this person, they're trash, they're not in the department, so they have no stakes. They're just your homie <laughs> on your side, like, yeah, screw them too, right? Um, but it's good to have someone who's not, uh, I mean, have homies in your department too, but it's also really important to have friends outside of your department. Uh, and I think the other thing about, uh, you know, being able to, uh, like, how do you find this balance of staying true to yourself and keeping line with your vision? Uh, it's really just picking a, uh, uh, this really goes to the importance of having an advisor, an advisor who's mm. very, so my advisor is like this amazing model, Cameron McCarthy. He's super kind and generous and curious, and he will let me explore things on my own. Uh, he would let me make mistakes and he would ring me in when I veered off too far. Right. Um, but I think there's something about that where, you know, and that's not to say that he was hands off, but he really allowed me to be intellectually curious um, and explore things on my own. You know, all I had to do was just justify it. Right. I'm like, oh, I'm doing mm-hmm. this because da 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 da. He's like, all right, that makes sense. Uh, and actually, one of the things, and this is actually, I think, is really important for a lot of potential graduate students or current grad students, is that you don't have to have an advisor who does exactly what you do. I know so many mm-hmm. people come to a place like, oh, no one does exactly what I do. No one on my committee, not me, my, my, my advisor, do anything on Brazil. Right? Um, and actually, in some ways, that was beneficial because I had to explain the importance of Brazil and Black Brazilians to a non-Brazilian audience. Right? Mm. Uh, but what he did teach me was how to critically interrogate uh, my intellectual inquiries, right? So he's like, you know, how are you approaching this? You know, what are the dynamics? So he didn't have a um, site-specific knowledge, mm-hmm. but he was very good and generous at being at training me how to be a scholar who thinks, who designs a research uh, a program systematically, how to carry it out, how to stay uh, accountable. Uh, it's funny now because. You know, he's learned a lot about Brazil from me. He actually uses it against me. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's right, so he's like, you know, in Brazil, uh, you know, this and this and this is a place. So how do you, you know, reconcile with that? I'm like, damn, I talked to you too well. But no, I mean, this is um, And I think the other part was, you know, you see a lot of people who are doing work because it's a hot topic or they think it'll give you a job. Um, but, you know, again, like, you got... For me, I got into academia not just to get a job because I want to do something with some feeling. And I know that's idealistic, too, because academia is just like any other industry. Um, but, you know, I, the question I always have for people, like, what's your investment in your research? 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing too is, you know, I'll, I'll add to that is, I think a lot of people think grad school should be a seamless process, mm-hmm. and it's not. We all going to take L's. Even your favorites, they have taken some L's, and that's just how it works, right? Um, some people are jerks. Sometimes you don't get what you need. Um, sometimes you know there's setbacks. Um, you know, I think you know there's, there's definitely times to get upset when you take an L unnecessarily. Um, but also, you know, no one comes out of this thing unscathed. You know, I'll take some bumps and bruises, and those are you know opportunities for growth, maturity. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think some people just think it's you know this very idealistic place where nothing goes wrong. I'm like, no, plenty of stuff goes wrong. Right? Everything goes wrong. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know, how do you respond to that? Yeah, and so to to just you know pick your brain a little bit, what were some of the L's you took? You don't have to get into the specifics, but mm. <laughs> what were some of the L's you took, and how did it transform you? So you can focus more on the second part of the question of, you know, you can maybe you don't want to get into the details of the L, but can you recall a time where you were like, man, that hurt, but that needed to hurt because that made me into the scholar that I am today? Yeah. So, I mean, I remember the DGS in my program, he told us as first year, he goes, you're not a real academic until you've gotten 100 rejections. Interesting. <laughs> So I was like, let me get this hundred over real quick. Um, you start doing the chalk. You take a chalk yeah. and in the board and you're like one. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, you know, like I didn't get any, you know, I didn't get any external fellowships to go do research, you know, do my ethnographic research in Brazil. I kind of always had to cobble it together. So it was like two months this summer, three months the next summer, one month after that. Um, and it wasn't easy, right? I mean, I was able to get some internal fellowships from my university, uh, but those were hard. I mean, you know, I see some of my peers who are getting, uh, you know, fellowships for the year to get Ford and Fulbrights, and you know, rightfully so. I'm happy for them. Uh, side note: when your homies get something, you got to cheer them on. Like we're all trying to come up, right? Uh, you know, their success is not your loss. Um, but it was hard, you know, being like, oh, is my research worthy? You know, is it good enough? Uh, why am I not getting, you know, these other things? Uh, so, you know, I think that was an L. And then, you know, also it took me a while to land a tenure track job. Mm-hmm. That was also, you know, rough. And, you know, a lot of folks, um, you know, I started, I had a postdoc and then I had a two-year visiting position. And now the position I, position I have now starts off as a, uh, as a fellowship that then transitions into a tenure track job. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it took me a while to get settled. Right. And so, you know, applying for a lot of jobs, not getting them, um, you know, for me, I don't want to idealize this, but for me, I was very steadfast in terms of one, I just kept getting positions that kept me in the game. <laughs> I kept collecting a paycheck. You know, not everyone gets that. And if folks have to leave academia, um, you know, I think that's something else we should talk about where, you know, there's no shame in that. I've taken and I've taken quite a few to L's. Right. And I think um, I think I just keep asking myself, is this worth it? Is it satisfying? Am I able to live well uh, or well enough? Um, and I'm also, you know, also asking what is not enough? You know, mm. um, you know, I haven't had to come. That question never has been 
concrete, but I think it's a question we should ask, you know, what, what am I not willing to give up for academia, right? Mm -hmm. So say if you graduate and you have this amazing dissertation and you got pubs, but you're not getting any jobs, you know, like maybe I need to go into industry uh, or maybe I'm, you know, is it worth still trying to stay in academia if it's not getting you a paycheck? Um, and I think, you know, or if you're not in a place where you want to be, um, you know, I would say, I'll say this vaguely. I'm sure there's some certain states that people don't want to live in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think people just have to ask, you know, what, you know, what is, um, you know, what are they willing to do, what they're not willing to do to be in academia? And to that, I think it's very interesting to see how when people leave academia and go into the industry or just really go somewhere else, the, the way they're able to transform the knowledge and may either do so many different things with it, you know, and it's, it's like, wow, so many opportunities or different ways to learn and help communities that, you know, be in, in dialogue with communities you want mm-hmm. to. So maybe the, the classroom is not like the end goal, um, of where you want to be, like you, maybe you don't want to be a professor, which is a conversation you know some scholars are having. They're like, no, I'm here to take the knowledge and then <laughs> bring it back to my community in a mm-hmm. in a different way. So yeah, that's that's definitely real. And so you spoke a little bit about how you know earlier that you being an ethnographer, you had to learn how to make sure that, you know, the people you were talking to in these different communities could gain your trust. Mm-hmm. How do you think, like, do you remember how you started off and then um, the things you've learned to, along the way on, like, the skills, how to do it right, how to really preserve people's privacy, respect the local knowledges that you're tapping into, Um but can you tell us a little bit about that just so and really what i'm trying to get at is we have to sometimes start thinking about different ways of you know how we do the research we do Mm -hmm. so as not to reproduce colonial you know methodologies and the such so what are some of the things that were maybe taught to you and you were like no i'm gonna do it a different way or you know some things that you've learned along the way but yeah if you can tell us a little bit about that So there's a lot there. I'm trying to think about how I learned it. Mm. Um, I think for me, so the the the, the project I just finished is on. I mean, I'm still me writing some about it, but it's about the hip hop movement in Northeast Brazil in Bahia. Um, and now I'm looking. You know, I've I've changed it from looking at them as both media audiences and producers, and then changed it to see either recreating quilombos or maroon communities um, in contemporary era. Um, so I'm, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is be modest about who we are and that these people owe us nothing. <laughs> and I think for me, I think the, the, the thing I was, I thought to myself was, if someone came to me and be like, hey, as, if an ethnographer came to me and anthropologist be like, hey, can I stare your life? I'm like, absolutely not. Get away from me, right? <laughs> like, what were the things I would have to do, would someone have to do to earn my trust? And I think I used oh. that when I got there. Um, and also part of it was friends who I met on my first study abroad in 2008 were introducing me to people. So I felt also accountable to my friends to do this right. 
and they also told me like we knew that you know you would respect folks um you know you're not gonna be a jerk um you're not gonna be disrespectful and so i think the fundamental thing about being an ethnographer is you have to cultivate relationships before you can even think about asking for anything Mm -hmm. and so for me my goal often was just to show up and meet people um introduce myself and be like, hey, I'm going to be here. Uh, you know, I'll be back next week at the same event or et cetera. Um, and then also, you know, cultivating relationships allow me to use, you know, what they call snowballing, a.k.a. just reaching out to other folks. Like, oh, I did this interview with so-and-so. They recommended you. You know, I'd love to set up a time. Uh, you know, you have to show that you're, you're sincere about wanting to get to know them as people and you're not just there to extract um, and so one thing I would do that was really, I think, meaningful to people was I would meet them wherever they lived at. So I'm going to the periphery. I'm going to the favelas. Um, you know, people would meet me like, you know, sometimes you get ice cream or coffee. Right. They're like, oh, you're not afraid to, like, come up here. I'm like, no. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, also people will try you. So you're like, oh, can we, you know, have this meeting at two, you know, interview at two? You know, everyone's late. I still got there at two because I said, all right, I said two. I know they're going to show up at like 2.33. And then sometimes at five o'clock, they're like, oh, I'm stuck in traffic. Can we do another week? One person yeah. actually made had to reschedule three times. Mm. Uh, but they're like, oh, you know, like I don't owe you anything. I was like, okay, well, yeah. this is true. You know, my job is to get the, the interview however it takes. Uh, so, you know, like I'm not going to be you know, irate about it. Um, but like I said, these, these are... Um, you know, you have to be accountable and have relationships. And then also one thing actually ended up helping me about not getting a fancy fellowship where I could spend one year consecutive there was meant I kept making return trips. So people mm. interpreted that as me showing a commitment to always being there and being present with the community and being in present. Mm. Um, and so now it's just like, oh, when are you coming back? I'm like, all right, you know, I'll be back, you know, this time, da, da, da. Um, and I think the other thing we have to think about is just the small things we can do as researchers to make their lives easier. So now I joke, I've become a trafficker of sorts because I have to bring down, like I got homies who are producers and DJs like, Hey, can you bring down this piece of equipment for me? I'm like, oh. I was like, yeah, sure. It's fine. Like I'll bring it down. Um, I remember one time I was going down and I had to put this fancy piece of DJ equipment in my carry on. Cause I didn't want to put it in my checked in luggage. So I'm going through TSA, you know, like anything bigger than a cell phone, you got to take out. So I took out this big thing. The TSA agents looking at me like, what is this? I'm like, I sound like, oh, I'm a DJ and I'm going to Brazil to, you know, to do some performance. Uh, He's like, all right, I guess. Uh, but, you know, it's it's much cheaper for them, you know, mm-hmm. to buy these goods in the States than it is in Brazil. So even doing small things like that, or sometimes, just, you know, it's shoes. I get it. Yeah. Um you know, what kind of things can you do to show your solidarity that you're not just there to take, but you also want to give back? Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other thing I think is, uh, I got to write about this at some point. Uh, but I remember, I think it was 2018, the city was about to create fines for graffiti murals. And so in Brazil, graffiti is considered to be public art, a public good. And so they want to uh, uh, have these like very significant fines. And so... Uh, I was talking with a, a feminist graffiti artist down there. And I was like, what if I write a letter to the editor, you know, for the local newspaper? 
And then, you know, to, to say, like, why this is racist and classist and, like, why, you know, uh, graffiti is a good thing. She's like, yeah, let's do it. She's also an educator. So I wrote this letter because I was trying to use my position as a U.S. researcher, right, as leverage for them. So I wrote this letter. She edited it. We sent it to a couple outlets and, like, crickets. <laughs> it never got published. It never got published. But the important thing was that I made a concerted effort, right, to show up for them, to defend them. Um, their ways of life, their practices, et cetera. So I think those things are really important. When you're working with folks, you have, you're have you in a relationship and you have to take that seriously. If you're just there to extract, they're going to see it and that's really going to impact how they see you and how they interact with you and what kind of you know research you can get from them. Yeah, that that's very true. Those two last points of whether you're trafficking down <laughs> you know, goods that they need, um, I'm very complicit in that. I do that when I go to Senegal or if somebody needs something. But it's just like, you know, it's it's because it's a relationship. You have yeah. to see these people as humans. And like, you need a bottle of vitamin C? We can get that for you. No problem. It's one bottle. You know, it's like, how are we yeah. going to? I just go to UPS and they're like, she's always coming here with some random things. <laughs> yeah. um, but also this using your positionality. And that's that is just... To reach that level, you know, I hope one day I can reach that level and then not forget, you know, you kind of being intentional about how you use your positionality. And usually I'll speak for myself as just a graduate student. You tend to think like, oh, it's going to do something big and it's huge. And then honestly, the the whole point of was to just do it in the first place, whether it's going to be huge or not, like that's kind of like later on, but it's to use your positionality and go through this process of helping someone else out. Um, and then even if it's just crickets, it's just crickets, but at least you tried, like you did something. Right. Um, that's just so important. Yeah. Cause they want to know that you'll struggle with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just like come in and then write your book and then be like, well, thank you mm-hmm. <laughs> much appreciated. So, <laughs> and so I'm curious to know, did you, do you, can you recall whether it's, even if it's this, you know, this project that you're writing on something like a, a light bulb moment where, you know, there's in academia, sometimes we have this thing where everything connects and you're like, it's all connected. Um, do you have, can you recall a moment where you're just like, I've been working on this for 10 years or five years and you were like, wow, I came in, I can remember when I came into academia with this partial, partial knowledge mm-hmm. and now I'm completing it. And it's between, you know, while you're working on this, um, the, the hip hop stuff or the, the connecting Brazil to the, to the States. Can you tell us like of a light bulb moment? Yeah. So I think the light bulb moment for me was after I finished, I made a concerted effort to really engage more deeply with black Brazilian intellectual thought and theory, uh, particularly those who are writing in Portuguese, um, and also, it was a good time because a lot of stuff was being published or republished or gathered in, you know, edit, edited anthology. And I remember I was reading Beatriz Nascimento, um, a Black Brazilian feminist, and she's talking about quilombos and how quilombos are not just about the past and then how they um, continue to manifest over time and space and they take on different configurations. And literally, I was like, oh, shit, like, what she's saying literally applies to the hip-hop movement that I'm studying here. I'm like, 
this is a quilombo. And then I started looking, I'm like, they're actually already talking about this in many ways, right? And they have certain practices. Um, and so for me, it was about engaging local knowledges um, and really listening to folks instead of, and I think for me, it was always trying to decenter myself as a researcher who has like the ultimate set of knowledge. And for me, it was always, you know, so I've always tried to understand the local knowledges and how people are producing them, practicing them, thinking about them. And honestly, that just takes time. You know, I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, in academia, we're so pressed, you know, finish our, our programs in four years and, you know, put out the book in two. And, you know, there's this pressure to constantly produce and we don't always get time to sit back and think. Mm. So I think, you know, there's a, sometimes we have to let things breathe. And so when I was able to let things breathe after the disc, that's when this idea of, oh, the hip hop movement is actually a quilombo, right? And this is a form of black culture and political resistance. Uh, that just changed everything for me. But for me, I really had to engage with, um, you know, and, and this is also when I was taking on more of my, uh, more I, sorry, this is when I started to really assert my own identity as a scholar, you know, as a dissertation, you know, you're, you're showing that you know the field, your discipline, but as I moved into my own work, you know, I wanted to make, engage with different uh, theories. And for me, it was really thinking about what does, in this case, Black Brazilian intellectual thought, how they come to bear on um, like Black cultural studies and media and pop culture. And so, yeah, that was the moment I was just like, oh, there it is. Hmm. And while, while you have that there it is moment, did you have moments along that you know, along that journey where you brought in your subjectivity and, you know, your subjectivity reinforces the knowledge or, you know, the field work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So how did you put those two together? Oh, so a lot of that too was, I mean, I used hip hop as a conduit mm-hmm. to make connections with folks down in Brazil as well. And so, um, so it gave me a, a, a kind of common culture and vocabulary to talk about certain experiences of race, class, culture, resistance, ideology. Because what happens is a lot of folks come from the United States to Brazil and kind of have this flattening of racial difference. Like, oh, you're black, I'm black. Like, we're all black. And they're like, uh, there's a lot of differences there, right? Um, and so for me... Part of it was using hip hop, like, all right, this is how what hip hop did for me growing up and kind of helped my own consciousness, um, but also allowed me to ask them how it's influenced them and also being like, this is your country. So how are things different here that are much different there? And again, this is kind of this ethnographic sincerity and humbleness of saying, like, I'm here to learn with you and from you. Uh, you know, I'm not the almighty, uh, you know, knowledge creator here. Um, and so, because part of it is we always assume, you know, people from the United States have a higher status. And so for me, I was like, I'm actually not concerned about that. Mm-hmm. I'm not here. I don't know everything. I'm here to learn. Um, I'm here to help out to the extent I can. So, you know, really negotiating uh, nationality, uh, mm-hmm. also negotiating, um, to be honest, class, like social mobility, because at this point, you know, I don't think we think about grad students as being middle class, but in some ways we don't have a middle class salary, <laughs> but we have like a middle class education, 
Uh, sometimes mobility, you know, they're like, you got, it's like, you know, you got this money to come down to this other country and, you know, be here and not work. Like, that does not sound poor working class to me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a privilege that, you know, that comes with it. So it's, yeah. it's like layer, layers to it, but yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, you know, I grew up working class, you know, da, da, da. But also, like, I realize the position I'm in now. However, you know, for me, I really want to affirm poor and working class Black people's knowledges and experiences. So that really was a way for me to negotiate things with folks. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an even process, too, because some people were like, nah, I'm good. I don't want to talk with you. Um, and other <laughs> folks were like, yeah, I got you. I got you. Don't worry. And so was your dissertation, like, fully, was it? in the format of just fully being written? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm not you... that challenged to do anything else. Oh. <laughs> okay, because I, I was just thinking, I was just like, I didn't even ask if, you know, they were like, because I'm like, he's talking about music and sound. So I was like, were there like, you know, you linked it to some video where people could watch, but I was just curious. It's um, because it, this makes me think of, how there was a graduate student in Clemson a couple of years ago when it was the first dissertation that came out in the form of an album. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I wonder what your thoughts on about that of like, what would it look like for those who are working in music, mm. you know, as a way of like engaging more black scholars to be like, listen, the format of this can be different. That's a whole different conversation with what the ivory tower would see as credible and et cetera. But <laughs> I mean, I will say, one, I don't have that kind of talent to, to produce an album, and that's okay. But one thing I wanted to, and this is actually something that helped me was, you know, I would compare, and they're different on certain registers, but also, you know, I mean, in general, music has been a site of intellectual thought and theory and culture for Black folks, right? And so I really want to let them know, I'm like, I really want to privilege those knowledges and music and art and the visual arts and see that as co-eval with what I write as a researcher. And so mm-hmm. I really want to like I honor what you're what you're producing and this is important. And like knowledge isn't just in books, right? And it's not just done by professors or researchers. Um, and I will say there are certain places that will allow folks to do uh, a performance for their dissertation and then they have to write a maybe like a, a, a small document, by small, I mean like 20 pages, you know, yeah. explaining why this is a, you know, a form of a knowledge production. So some universities are getting there, but some are slower mm. than others. And I believe Penn is one of them. So, mm. if, you know, someplace like, well, our, our peer institutions aren't doing this. Like, well, is Penn good enough for you? Mm. <laughs> that's as far, that's as much as I know. If you want to yeah. learn more, you gotta, you gotta dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, that that's really interesting about like what's what our dissertation is going to look like, um, yeah. you know, a decade or twenty years from now. But I'm hoping I don't take that long to finish. But <laughs> you know, as we just wrap up, do you have or did you have like a piece of art or song, um, poem, a book that helped you get through? any low moments while, you know, during your journey in academia or even that you still use? Yeah. So, you know, it won't be surprising that I use a lot of music to help me through. So I listen to uh, um, Gil Scott Heron a lot. Um, The Coup, uh, My Favorite Mutiny, I always listen to that. 
Um, artists in Brazil, I listen to a lot of Bayana System, Gilberto Gil, uh, Luigi Luna. Uh, sometimes you just want, I mean, especially when I'm in Brazil, sometimes I need things to remind me of home. And then sometimes when I'm back in the United States, I need things to remind me of Brazil. Um, mm. kind of help me, you know, it's kind of in between, I'm in between the United States and Brazil so much now. Uh, mm. You know, things that kind of help me you know, feel grounded, especially when I'm not in a place. Um, yeah, so it's, music is really definitely a go-to. Um, and then also, you know, I, I know you also asked about books. Uh, you know, I frequently go back to the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. Um, you know, I love reading Octavia Butler. You know, I love... Uh, I mean, one, is just dope to see Black people in the future. Like, let's just talk yeah. about that. Just the imagination. Right. Just. Um, but, you know, also seeing Black people in an apocalyptic future, too, is important, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that the world comes crumbling down. There are still many ways uh, to survive and, and, and live in different ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, it's, it's not surprising based on my work, but, you know, music and the arts are just really important for me. Uh, and then also, a lot of times, I go to museums and just look at art. Mm-hmm. You know, here in the United States and in Brazil, you know, it's always uh, very comforting for me. And then also, sorry, lastly, I try to collect <laughs> art from um, the graffiti artists that I do research with. Uh, mm-hmm. So one, you know, support your local artists, but two, you know, I have their work up in my home. Um, and so, you know, that's that's always really comforting. Yeah, those, those are all good. Um, they're all good visuals whether it's auditory things you see but it always helps with things that you can feel yeah um especially octavia Ooh. note do not read do not listen to kindred while you drive that almost had me in an accident oh, because uh-huh. you it's just uh, i don't know why i thought i could do an audible but <laughs> ever since then i kind of stayed away from audibles um but <laughs> Do you have, um, I guess, any advice to either young st- young faculty members or just, you know, students who are um, graduate students, black graduate students? Um, what would you what would you say to your younger self? And also in the same vein, what would you say to your older self? You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> younger self, I would say I think it's really good to ask folks. Uh, you know, how serious they are about this. Um, you know, I think some people really just want to stay in a certain environment. And going to graduate school is a way to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it's more important if folks are thinking about how it, how going to academia, becoming a graduate student is a part of their growth as individuals. Um, one thing I've actually done at multiple stages in my life, like after I've accomplished something big, like even just finishing undergraduate, I've taken a solid like three, four months and think very deeply about like, okay, who, where am I going and who do I want to be and how am I going to get there? And one thing I did after, I took two years off between undergrad and my PhD program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that gave me time to one, just live. I highly recommend folks taking a year or two off and just living life. Um, but it reinforced my desire to go back to grad school. 
Um, and I think that an important thing is you have to pick your program wisely. Don't always go after the rock star scholar. It's really mm -hmm. it's more important to have a kind and caring mentor who can guide you through the process. Um, and really think about the environment. Are they supporting you? Um, oh, I guess while we're here, make sure you get funded. Do not pay for your PhD program. Do not. That is the pyramid scheme. Make sure you are funded. If they say they can't fund you, then it's it's a no go. It's going to be a no mm -hmm. for me. Um, you know, see how they you know talk to other black graduate students in that department around campus. You know, see if you can be there. Um, and then when you get there, you have to be there, right? Mm -hmm. You can't be doing all these other things. Like your job is to be there, to you know, go to classes, to be an intellectual. Um, you know, that takes a priority. I think some people try to half-ass that and try to do something else. It's a big commitment. So you have to ask yourself, you know, are you willing to sacrifice some weekends to do this, to live in a place that's less than ideal? Like I went to Champaign-Urbana. It is cornfields. <laughs> ended up loving it, but it was a cultural shock, right? I was like, this is important. This is temporary. Um, you know, you, you really got to dig deep and ask yourself, is this what you want to do? Advice to my future self. You know what? I'm going to take it. Uh, I'm going to steal this from Jay-Z. Keep writing your last like your first. <laughs> that, that, that'd be a good one. And I hope you always come back to this recording. <laughs> just, just come at forty at the forty seventh minute. Just you know, <laughs> the reminder. Yeah. But thank you so much. Um, this was a great conversation. Um, thank you once again for making the time, and I'll put all your information in the bio and the link below. Everyone will know where to find you. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Vincent. Thank you so much, Take care.